Hi, I'm Peter Santoscano. I host Bubble and Squeak here on the Rock Candy Network. I tell personal, revealing stories. She whispered, Did you just masturbate? Because I felt a terrible presence of evil enter the... I make prank phone calls to the past. Heimbach. General Star, Elijah Heimbach speaking. How may I help? Into the future. <clears throat> because my boyfriend and I are just not having enough sex. Always a problem with the pop sex. Yes, you just have to listen to it. It's too hard to describe. Check out Bubble and Squeak wherever you listen to podcasts. So if you don't have a healthy environment, you don't have a healthy society and you don't have a healthy economy. These are nested things, right? And so we have to start with the basics and I would call them good land and pure water. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right. Well, before we get started, as usual, we have just a few pieces of housekeeping. First, we are still building the podcast network, Rock Candy. We have some amazing shows. We have Bible Bash, which is with Peterson Toscano, a queer Quaker biblical scholar, actor, and activist, an environmental activist. And then we have Liam Hooper, who is a transgender biblical scholar. And together, they uh, dissect scripture and scripture from the Bible, but also also extra biblical scripture as well from a trans queer perspective from and it is absolutely awesome we also have bubble and squeak which is a little drama podcast by the absolutely genius peterson toscano and we have eleventy life with matt langston and sacred tension of course and we are just continuing to bring on more shows and if you want to be among their number if you want to be part of this amazing little community of weird creators then please send me your pitch you can do that by going to rockcandyrecordings.com or stephenbradfordlong.com and i cannot wait to hear your ideas for a podcast third finally i really need your help and i believe in what i'm doing i believe in getting the show out there but i need your help to do that and so go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And for a dollar a month or five dollars a month, you will get extra content, including the House of Heretics podcast. And it will help ensure that this show will have a long life. All right. Well, with all of that finally out of the way, I am so happy to welcome Melissa Wilson back to the show. Hello. Hi, thanks for having me again, Stephen. Of course. So, of course, you're a, an audience favorite. People absolutely love you. People think you're the best. And um, <laughs> thank you. I'm pretty. I'm pretty out there. Maybe that's why. I, think <laughs> I work so. good for radio. <laughs> you are very. You're so good for radio, and you're very good for <laughs> this kind of radio, which is all for you know outsiders and thinkers and renegades and heretics. So perfect. Yes. <laughs> I'm a. I'm among good company. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's really wonderful because most of the people who listen to this show, it's like this crazy cross section of uh, like the of 
Satanists, occultists, witches, pagans, evangelical Christians, fundamentalists, and atheists, and post-Christians. It's like this crazy cross-section wow. of people. Yeah, wow. I love it. Rare rare and diverse people. Rare and, my, and diverse people. And my slogan <laughs> for the next 40 years of my life, because I just turned 40 in June. On Congratulations. June yeah. I turned 31 real- on the 19th. You did? Yeah, Doesn't I it did. feel good? Like when you get into a new decade, there's it's like new great. sense of life. Yeah. It's great. But, I, but my slogan is I save wild places for wild people. So I love I feel that. I feel good on this show. Good. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. Okay. So we are going, we're we're here to talk about something that keeps me up at night. We mentioned this in passing on our previous show that we did together about our alma mater. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, you are an environmental scientist. And, and it's such an important topic that I wanted to have you on again to talk specifically about this subject, mass extinction and sustainability on our planet. So yeah, I am I want I, you know, I'm I'm putting climate change kind of more into the rotation of yep. of the show because and I'm and I want to you know just bring awareness to it in my own tiny little insignificant way because and I can't imagine I'm the only one who feels this way I feel like it is a constant looming shadow over me and mm-hmm. it is always there in the back of my mind I've read you know the uninhabitable earth by david wallace wells which was a great book and terrifying and I mm-hmm. and you know and, you know, I was very intimately aware of that UN report that came out a year or two ago yep. about point one, uh, 1.5 degrees of warming. And I have been coping with terror. Yeah. And then President Trump saying, you know, that climate change isn't happening and exactly. not being willing to be a part of the Paris Climate Agreement exactly. when every other democratic nation is like pushing for it and has made changes already to their policies. You know, we have we have entire countries like Costa Rica that's going carbon neutral. We have other countries that are going mm. carbon positive. Um, mm. And here we are supposedly the leader of the free world. And we don't even want to believe that Exactly. Real science is happening. Exactly. And we have millions, I mean, millions of data sets to show that it is. And we've known since 1918 that this would yes. happen as we increased carbon in the atmosphere. Um, you know, chemists were telling us like they're doing closed, closed systems, right? They're like in the lab and they're looking at closed systems and they're saying as we increase carbon in the atmosphere, there will be temperature changes. There will also be like acid changes, right? We knew that in the early 1900s. So to act like it's not happening now in the new millennium is just absolutely uh, ridiculous. <laughs> and, you know, to quote David Wallace Wells, he says that we have done the vast majority of damage. We have put the planet into a state that we have never... Never seen before. Never seen before within our species lifetime, right? Correct. With, Correct. And we have done that knowingly. Right. And the vast majority of it has happened in my lifetime in the past 30 years. I mean, Rachel Carson, you know, famous female environmentalist has a great quote in the beginning of her first chapter of Silent Spring, which is, you know, her national bestseller. And the interesting thing about this quote is that she paints this picture of a world in which all these species are dying, Mm. in which people are having cancer, Mm. in which um, birds are going like shaking and falling off of roofs where there's Mm. a white dust everywhere. She wasn't actually talking about climate change. She was talking about DDT, which was one of her study areas as a female scientist. But 
her last line says, and the people have done it to themselves. Yes. And it's this reminder that like all environmental problems we are doing to ourselves. Yes. And because we created them, we have the ability to fix them mm. because they are within our control. We, you cannot fix a problem that you haven't created, right? Uh. But we created these problems. So therefore we can fix them. All right. So <laughs> is that helpful? <laughs> it is. It is. And um, so there was another UN report that mm -hmm. came out this year. And I forget exactly when this show will probably air sometime in late July or August. Uh, so yep. it'll, it'll be some time before this show comes out. But the UN basically said, and I paraphrase, we're fucked. And so mm -hmm. many and, and, you know, all the cute little creatures are fucked, too. Most of all the cute little creatures. Um, <laughs> that's right. That's what it is in Internet speak. That is like <laughs> all that my non-scientific mind can handle is yep. everything is fucked. So you as the scientist, could you please uh, extrapolate on the study that says everything is fucked. Yeah. So basically <laughs> <laughs> this came out in early May and what they did is over three years time, they had input from 145 scientists from 50 countries. And then they also had another 310 contributing authors. So authors that were kind of secondary authors. And basically they looked at everybody's studies over the last 50 years. So we would call this a meta-analysis or like, you know, a big report that kind of brings everybody together and says, all right, what not what is like this one person saying or this two, but like what is everybody saying in the sciences? And they basically said the top number one finding was that one million species are threatened with extinction. And we have never seen that level of extinction. We've had extinctions over time because of climatic changes that had to do with natural changes in the Earth's atmosphere and natural changes. We have never seen that many species lost in one time in, in the record. So, so, so could you put that into perspective for people like one million just that's too big a number yeah. for us, right? Like right. we it's have a huge. hard time grasping that. So could you put this into perspective in terms of the history of the earth? What does that mean in the context of the history of life on earth, right? Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, and that the tricky thing is because of evolution, right? We don't always know how many species were in each epoch. Sure. Like each time period, we don't know. And we even don't know, we haven't even cataloged, Stephen, all the species that are on earth right now. Yes. So we, so to put that in perspective is mm. a hard perspective, but I've heard it's anywhere from a hundred fold to a thousand fold difference in the extinctions. So we've increased these extinctions by times a hundred or times a thousand. And there are people that think that's it's closer to times 10,000. So there's wow. real variation in, in that number, but no matter wow. what it's we still... are, we are increasing extinctions and it is something that it's our problem. Like we created this problem and we can talk through, I mean, the biggest, I think I can come back to a couple big things. So the very first one is this equation that in environmental science, we like to call IPAT. It stands for our impact on the earth is equal to our population size, our affluence, how much money we make, and our technology. So those things are multiplied by each other. Our population size, our affluence, how much money we make, and our technology. When we multiply those things by each other, we get our impact. And huh. right, so how much how much we're impacting the globe. Yeah. And what we've seen over time, right, is that since the industrial revolution, that IPAT, 
that impact has greatly increased. We used to have this kind of gentle, easy up and down of population size. We used to have this gentle, easy kind of up and down of affluence, gentle, easy up and down of technology. All of a sudden the industrial revolution comes into play and all three of those variables skyrocket and they skyrocket together. And when that happens, then the earth becomes taxed like for food, clean water, clean air, um, basically everything that we need to survive, we mm. are taxing because all three of those variables are all growing. And well, I don't know, I guess, so I'm a catastrophizer. It's just who mm -hmm. I am. And so I hear that. What does that mean? What does that mean? Catastrophizing means like, like an example of catastrophizing. Oh, I was five minutes late to work. Oh no, I'm going to get fired and then I'm going to be homeless and then I'm going to die. So you go, uh, yeah, okay, <laughs> you know, okay. Mm -hmm. That yep. That's catastrophizing. Okay. Yep. So when I hear what you just said, mm -hmm. I'm two questions come up, which is mm -hmm. what about, I mean, so does this just, so what does this mean about impoverished nations that are finally experiencing affluence and yep. How hor like isn't this just horribly, horribly unfair to yeah. them, right? It, like how how awful and unfair is this? Yeah. Because ultimately they're the ones who are going to bear the brunt of this, right? Exactly. Okay, so that's the other thing. So you can go, anybody can go and do their ecological footprint online. And there's a lot of we can post some links when this comes out. That would be some great. different places yeah. they can go to. So if you want to think sustainably. All right. If you look at someone, let's say Nicaragua, because I've studied that a lot of people in Nicaragua over time, because my husband used to go there and visit and help to build churches and communities and things sure. like that. So people in Nicaragua are generally living pretty sustainably because they live in small villages. They their population size is increasing. So they've got that that's increasing. But their affluence is pretty, pretty, you know, they make a dollar a day. Yeah. those sort of things, right? They're making 30 bucks a month. Their technology is close to none, right? Those are not the people that are having huge ecological footprints. Those are not the people that we're talking about that need to change their behavior. So who we're talking to is the United States. It's me. I mean, it's people like China. Me. It's right. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's us. Well, that's who we're talking to. Like even Germany, like we like Germany has made some amazing, amazing changes in the last 20, 30 years. Hmm. When I was 14 years old, I went to Germany and up and down the Rhine River, they had trash barges floating. That is because their landfills were so full, they had no place for their trash to go. So therefore, they put them on barges and they went up and down the river all day long, smelling up every place that you oh could my possibly God, think of until just... <laughs> there was things that decomposed in landfills and they could go dump it. And I remember being a 14-year-old and being like, that is stupid. Yeah. And someday when I grow up, I'm not living in a country that has trash barges. Germany it's like the has worst already... kind of dystopia ever. Yeah. Like, that's almost right. like a comedic kind of dystopia. Exactly. So you <laughs> go to the Netherlands, you go to Germany, you go to all these other places, you go to France, and they've already experienced environmental crises. Yeah. They've already experienced these things because they've been landlocked. They've had land issues for a really long time. In America, mm. the land of the free, we keep thinking there's always somewhere else to go because of manifest destiny. And it is not true. There is, that is not true. And mm. so, so we, they're lucky because they're, they're 30 years ahead of us and that we're not listening to them says that we're stupid. And they all think that we are, you know, like, because we being, are. 
Because we are. So being we are at being Harvard, objectively stupid. <laughs> yeah. So being yes. at Harvard's really interesting because, you know, I was in a cohort of 21 people that were in my specific program that got to study like and make a thesis together all in one year. Okay. And in that program, out of 21 of us, 10 of those people had PhDs already. And that means that they already had a master's degree. I was one that already had a master's degree. And then another four already had master's degrees. These people were from Japan. They were from Qatar. They were from Costa Rica. They were from Mexico. They're from America, from Canada, right? They're from all around the globe. And so we sit there, they're from Egypt. We sit there and we start talking and I'm realizing, wait a minute, these things that I'm thinking about as an American, they thought about, they, they were learning in primary school. I'm thinking about these things in grad school and they're, they've already done it. Like Japan, like That's good. huge, they're like thinking sustainably because they live on an island. Well, they have to because they live on a tiny island and correct. they're facing down possible genus, environmental genocide. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So like I have a friend in Japan that I, that I graduated with, he already had his PhD and he's looking at new types of nuclear power plants that are actually really sustainable because they've been doing nuclear for a really long time and they realize that there's a lot of change that needs to be made, right? I have another friend that was making solar panels with crops underneath. So we always have this issue about land use with like solar farms. And we think that solar farms are going to take up too much land. So his idea is like, well, let's just put solar panels over corn or over soybeans or over something that we already have a crop for in Japan. And he actually found out it was amazing, his little study. He actually found out that by putting solar panels over corn, that the corn yield increased. So that means he actually got more corn. So now if he was a farmer in Japan, he has two crops in one. He's producing energy and he's producing food. And the corn had less water loss, right? Because as, as that corn is evaporating, like it, we call it transpiration in the sciences, but as that water is coming out of the corn, it's going up and it's hitting against the solar panels and it's literally raining back down on the corn. So it's making its own little microclimate and cooling itself. That's amazing. And it had a higher yield. So like those are things that are happening around the world that as Americans, we are not hearing about because what we're hearing about is mass market people that want to sell us shit, basically. Yeah. People that want us to continue business as usual because that's how they make money. It has nothing to do what's good for society, what's good for the environment, what's good for our children and our next generation. It has to do with a group of people that want to make a lot of money off of us, including our president. So, you know, as I'm listening you to you talk about these amazing innovations and discoveries that are happening at kind of like the grassroots level, I can't help but wonder if something my friend Peterson Toscano said is true. So he came on to the show. He's a climate activist and he's a really, okay. he's a really brilliant guy and, and he does it through drama. He's an actor. And oh, so he cool. does these amazing one man shows uh, where he, where he does work about being queer or climate stuff. He, he does a lot of stuff about the intersection of uh, queer and climate change. And it's really cool. Oh, the, like cool. the effects of climate change on minorities, the effects of climate change on pets, the effects of climate change on underprivileged community, that kind of stuff. But yep, he yep. said he said that he really thinks that change regarding climate change is going to be like the 
in the sudden transformation that took place with gay marriage in the United States because for hmm. decades people were laying the foundations they were working so there were so many people working so hard to lay the foundations and then when the time was right there was just this this explosion of transformation yeah. and and he says that he really thinks that that's going to be the case i hmm. just worry about the level of suffering that it will take to get there and the level of suffering that will be locked in because of being late. Absolutely. You know so, what I mean? Like, yeah, the, absolutely. I, so we're, yeah. we're talking about people. Okay. So let's just like what we won't even talk about the earth. Quite I mean, yet. but we'll we are, we're also, be, we're also talking about species and animals. Right. I mean, and, and plants right. and like the whole thing. Right. Right. But like, let's talk to those people that are, that are interested in humans first. And then let's go talk absolutely. about animals and plants too. Cause absolutely. And I'll tell you the reason, but my thinking behind that, but so, okay. so I live in the Caribbean, right. And I live on an Island of about three to 6,000 people, depending on if there's tourists here. Okay. And I live on St. John, U.S. Virgin Island. So the president doesn't think he's our president. And we're all fine with that. Which he is actually great. Is. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, but, but we're doing a lot of work with the Clinton Global Initiative and the Bloomberg Foundation to kind of help our island become sustainable. And one of the things I've read a lot about is that we are experiencing climate trauma. Okay. So we experience our island had two category five hurricanes in 2017 hurricane mm -hmm. irma and hurricane maria now the united states didn't hear a ton about those hurricanes the only reason why i knew is because i had come here with a harvard class right out a month before and i was studying the coral reefs here and a bunch of stuff in the national park there is an actual national park here that the rockefellers helped to set up in the nature conservancy so it's a pretty cool little island what's interesting about that is that since that time, we have children that don't have electricity. Yeah. We have people that don't have clean water. I have a food closet in my classroom for kids to come and eat snack and lunch whenever they need to because their families don't all have food because their entire economy is built off of this place bringing in tourists. Mm. And when all the trees are down and when the coral is dying, and when there is no hotels for them to stay in because they got knocked down from a hurricane and there's nobody to work the restaurants because the housing loss was, was you know, 90% of housing was Catastrophic. Affected. Yeah, 90% of housing, gone. That's an apocalypse. Roofs taken that's off. A, that's yeah. a tiny apocalypse. When the Army Corps of Engineers saw this island from the aerial maps, they brought a thousand body bags for 3,000 people. Okay, so they are so lucky. These folks here that live in the Caribbean are such a resilient people and they have lived with hurricanes for so long that they knew what to do and they band together and basically all the tourists and the people like they took in the people that they needed to take in and then everybody else flew off island. But that would have been one out of three, like from the pictures, it looked like a bomb went off and one out of three people is what we thought was going to be dead. Now, we're really lucky that that didn't happen. But I will tell you that if we're at two years and that people don't still have clean water, clean, you know, they don't have power, all of them, and they don't have food and that not everybody has jobs back. That's climate trauma. Yeah. And when you talk to people, when you talk to people that have been here for three, four generations, you know, they, they there are people that they can trace their history back to the to Madagascar when they're family was brought over and enslaved, right? And right. so they've been here and they know how this is. They say, miss, this was not a category five hurricane. 
This was a category 10, and there were two of them weeks apart from each other. So that's what we're talking about. And so when we, when we as Americans say, this isn't happening, you know what? That is rude. And it's hurtful to it's, other Americans, it, to Puerto it, absolutely. Ricans. Yeah. Yeah. And to also, people in Florida, to people in Lumberton, North Carolina. You yes. Know? And usually, and again, this is a class issue as well, isn't it? Because it's a, yes. Because the rich people, the, the rich yes. people are going to be able to escape and be just fine. You know, Ben Shapiro, the, you know, an enormous online fuckhead, basically was like, well, you know, if the oceans start rising, then just sell your house and move. Sell your house to who, you piece of shit? Like, right. but that's right. the men- but that's the mentality a lot of people have. Like, oh, we'll just move away from the coast and it'll be fine. And and so this is in many ways tr- the this brings out the vulnerabilities and horrors of kind of late stage capitalism, right? And yes, and these class absolutely. issues because you know, there are people on the coast who are still brutally suffering from last year's hurricanes. And we are now seeing thousand year hurricanes every year. Right. Yeah. Lumberton, (laughs) North Carolina, those kids were out of school for a year. Yeah. So we already have an impop, like, so thinking about North Carolina where you live, right. So we already have a school district in which we know that these children struggle with education. The yes. number, you know, they we don't have a high number of kids going to college in that county. And now they've had a hurricane and they're going to be out of school for a year, right? And like people said to me, well, you know, I'm sure FEMA brought you guys trailers. I'm like, we live in an island in the middle of the Caribbean. How would you get trailers here? <laughs> right? Like we couldn't even, we couldn't even, we didn't have a barge that ran for a year. Do you ever get <laughs> afraid living down there in the Caribbean? Yeah. Are yeah, you last, are you ever afraid? Year, yeah. Last year I'm leaving for the month of July. I need to get off island and kind of have, you know, we live on 45 square miles surrounded by ocean. So I need to, I need to have a little break from that. My biggest fear is I, I will, I will leave for the next hurricane. I don't own a house here. I'm here to help people. And I didn't want my efforts to be on myself, building a house and doing those sort of things. Yeah. Um, but I get really, fa- uh, really afraid during hurricane season. It is a scary, scary time. And then, um, but I think it's important for Americans to be here. I think I it's, agree. I came down to help rebuild a school, you know, and, and that's the other thing, you know, I'm, my family's, uh, I have two sets of immigrant family. So I've got Bohemian refugees. My family came from Bohemia after they got kicked out. And then my mom's side came, came from Mexico and thinking about immigrants and this, this is going to seem like a tangent, but these things go together is people that think that we have an immigration problem in America and don't think that climate is changing. They are not thinking in a cohesive way because the reason why we have high amounts of immigration is because people don't have food, water, shelter, and basic needs in other countries. And the reason why they don't is because the climate is changing. And so people are moving north. They're they're moving away from the equator. If you look at the maps of, of species movement, so we can go into species now. All species are moving up higher elevations where it's cooler Hmm. and they're moving north. Plants are moving. moving, Animals are moving. Fungi is moving. Everybody's moving. So why do we think that homo sapiens would not be moving? 
They are moving because they are not having their basic needs met. And we have seen this trend as the climate's changed, you know, not anthropogenic, like not human caused climate change, but other climate changes. We have seen this over time and we call it when species move to a new area, refugia, meaning that they're taking refuge right? Refugia is the place or the island that they move to. They're going to have their basic needs met. So when we talk about immigration from Mexico or people coming from war-torn countries, why are they having war? They're having war because they don't have food. They're having war because their land is dry. Is it also true that aggression rises. Yes. So, yes. so Dave, I recommend everyone read David Wallace Wells's book. And I don't know if you've read it uh, and if it stands up to rigor. Tell but me it, again. It's, it's called The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells. And one of the things that he talks about, two things that, that really do frighten me on, on a human level is um, how heat raises levels of aggression and how hmm. many of the rebellions and many of the civil wars that break out can be traced to heat waves. Wow. Isn't that crazy? And That and, is crazy. And how there's like this incredibly complex effect, not just on crops and the land, but also on mood and aggression, right? And, and how yeah. these things kind of come together to create a perfect storm. And then the other thing is, you know, the, we are in the middle of a refugee crisis with Syria. And think of how much that has destabilized Europe right now. And now we're seeing this rise of populism. We're seeing this rise of far-right populism and white nationalism yep. and, and so on and so forth. Well, that was how, I mean, that add about 9 million more. Right. Is what right. we're and that and this is all and, and here's the thing. It's like and this is what gets me, this is what keeps me up at night, is that UN report about mm -hmm. climate change said, here's what happens with the best case scenario. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. And so I'm I'm here like we're going to have to figure out a way to make sure that humanity becomes its best. Right. To accommodate yeah. this, right? Yeah. And yeah. And that's the really interesting thing. Like as an environmental scientist, you know, in the literature, people used to say, and in textbooks, like when I was teaching college, people would say, okay, you've got environment, society, and economy. And mm. the three of those meet in, a middle, in the middle. Yeah. And then Jeffrey Sachs, who's a famous economist, kind of said, actually, no, that's not true at all. You've got environment, which holds society which holds the economy. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have a healthy environment, you don't have a healthy society and you don't have a healthy economy. These are nested things, yeah. right? And so we have to start with the basics and I would call them good land and pure water. Like you got to have those two things and then the air is going to circulate how it's supposed to, right? Keep good land, keep pure water. Like you're going to have good air. What we're looking at right now in China, you know, when the president keeps saying China is eating our lunch, well, go look at pictures of people in China in major cities because they're all wearing air masks. I was and a missionary reason... in China. I was a missionary in Beijing. And you it were. Was, and I remember, I, I remember when we left Beijing and I was just looking out the window of, in the air of the airplane and it was this thick, disgusting smog. Yep. And then we, the airplane lifted above it and there was literally this soup. It yep. was like, it looked like 
dirty water lying yep. on top of the city. Yep. And it's like we just came right above it and there was this layer yeah. just blanketing everything. It was horrifying. I was like It is horrifying. I was like, "Oh shit, that's what I've been breathing for the past yeah. however long." <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And so I grew up in the Reagan Bush era, right? So I grew up in Los Angeles in the Reagan Bush era. And I was in the greater Los Angeles area, which meant that everybody commuted into into LA for work. And then everybody went into these bedroom communities that are up against the mountains to sleep, right? And I remember being in third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade and looking at the newspaper for the smog alert to know if it was going to be orange, red, or yellow, you know, yellow, orange, or red to know if we were going to be able to have recess outside as a kid. And every day, I didn't know that there were mountains that look like Patagonia peaks above my house. That's crazy. Because I could not see them, Stephen, because That's the smog crazy. was so bad. Because everybody, I mean, you know, if you look at that, um, oh, SNL skits where they talk about the Californians and they say like I took like the five to the 10 to the 15 and then I was on the 55 forever right and they do this kind of sketch Uh that's because how we grew up it was so much smog that we literally talked about freeways all the time because how we were going in and out of places with just these freeways and then our lives were filled with smog like so that's the thing we had literally couldn't see anything other than the freeway correct yeah. Correct. And so when I now, as a spatial ecologist, look at the land from aerial map and I compare that land to what's happening in like Chile and Argentina, that area is actually a complete and total converse of what we see in North America. And you look at their area and you're like, oh, that's so beautiful. I want to go there someday. And then I look at where I grew up and I'm like, that should look just like Patagonia. But it doesn't because in the 50s, we started modifying that land so much that it no longer has the beauty that Patagonia does. Mm. So what so you are working on this stuff. You you work Mm -hmm. in National Park. You are working on conservation and all this kind of and keeping and trying to basically fight the apocalypse and and try to keep the apocalypse (laughs) Fighting the apocalypse. Yeah. Keeping the apocalypse from happening. So, so what do we do? Good question. What, okay, so what do we do? There's and, a great and, website that I'm, I have not been a part about, um, but it's called Project Drawdown. Yes. And it basically tells you as an individual and then also within your like small town or your church mm. or your community, things that you can do to kind of help us not be at business as usual. And that's really, really important. Um, so I look at those Project Drawdowns and I a while back, I think there were 60 of them, but now there's more. Um, and think through like, okay, what can I do today? And then what can I do tomorrow? And like, just keep adding to those layers of what you personally can do now. That's interesting. Yeah. There's some work that says, go ahead. Well, so basically, you know, like when, when people talk about forming habits, they say you want to stack them. So like first build one habit and work on that for 30 days. And then after that first 30 days or whatever, then stack on another habit. And so it's like this cumulative way of changing your thinking. And so that's right. And so that's basically what I'm hearing is there are environmental habits and states of mind. And I want to also say, you know, 
from my understanding, it's important that w- that individuals do change the way we live, but it is also very important the way we to change the way we talk and think about this and and demand big corporations to act because at the end of the day it's the governments and corporations who are who who have who are doing the most damage, right? Right, exactly. So that's one of the interesting things that people get in this big debate about is like, they call it like 10 to the power of whatever. So the very first Hmm. is like 10 to the power of zero, which means that's a one, right? 10, anything to the power of zero is one person. And then Hmm. 10 to the power of one is 10 people, 10 to the power of two is 100 people. So scientists can kind of have said, social scientists have said, what does it take to change environmental behavior? And we basically know that it's a group of people moving at 10 to the power of three or 10 to the power of four. So anywhere Mm. from a thousand to 10,000 people is really what it takes to get some kind of change happening environmentally. And that's really not very many. It's not that many. That's not many at all. That's amazing, actually. Yeah. So part of the wonderful thing about living on the island that I live on is it's three to 6,000 people. So I'm in like the sweet spot for making change happen. And a good example of that is that we just had, so we know our coral is dying and our coral is dying for a lot of different reasons. One of them is climate change, and we can control that by the things we buy and doing the project drawdown stuff. But another one of it is that we, a lot of people come here to swim in the reefs, and when they swim in the reefs, they wear sunscreen. And there's certain sunscreens that have oxybenzone and a couple different chemicals in them Mm. that actually make the coral... they kind of put a coating on the coral skin and they don't allow the coral to be able to eat. Mm. Um, and so what we did as a, as a small little island is basically say, we don't want sunscreens that aren't reef safe on our island. And we went to you know our senators and said, we don't want this to happen. And literally that was changed in a two week period. You see, and it's little and shit like it's that. Little it's, stuff. Yeah, it's like, little stuff like that. Well, that's huge. Like we have reef safe sunscreen we can sell. We yeah. have reef safe sunscreen that is on the open market. Why aren't we making that change? And so like we had school kids making posters about it. We had, you know, major thinkers going to the senators and the senators were like, of course, our whole economy relies on this coral reef. Without yeah. marine protected areas, we have no taxis. We have no hotels. We have no restaurants. We have no cruise ships coming here. Of course, we're going to make that change, right? You Super know, simple. What that reminds me of is, I mean, I'm sure this is a far more complicated topic than I'm aware of, but closing the ozone layer. It mm-hmm. was it was spray bottles, right? It was, right. It was stuff in spray Aerosol. bottles. It was mm-hmm. aerosols. And yep. then... And then there was just a ban that happened, right? That's right. And that yep. was it. That was all it took. I mean, yep. maybe it was more complicated than that. But as far as I understand, that was it. No, it was super simple. So I think it's really important when we're thinking about this project drawdown is to remind ourselves that like the individual can make change. Because when we get a group yeah. of individuals together at 1,000 to 10,000 people, we see we see tons of changes. And an example of that is Samso Island, which is in the Netherlands. They 20 years ago, we're realizing that their island was really struggling with energy. And every island struggles with energy because you got to bring the input to your island. You've got to burn it somehow. Then you have to have your energy. Then you have to get it back to your people. It's just difficult. Yeah. So they put up a windmill. They had like 100 people. They all came together. They each, they crowdfunded it. They put up a windmill and they started making money off of it. Then they put up another windmill. They put another windmill. They had like three to 
5,000 people on their island, just like my island. And in 10 years, they were carbon neutral. 10 years later, they were carbon positive. Now they sell enough, you know, they have enough energy for everybody on their island to live and they sell energy to the mainland. That's amazing. 20 years. That's That's all that it took. And that was three to 5,000 people making a change. That's all that it was, you know? And so it's like, we have to start, the problem with climate change is we keep trying to solve things on a global level and we try and solve them in these big picture ways. I think that we need to keep doing that. We need to keep having the Paris Climate Agreement. We need to have these reports that go out on a micro level in individual communities, places like Black Mountain where you live, six to 10,000 people. You guys have to start deciding that you're going to make changes together. And if every community across the world did that, we would have no longer business as usual. And Eleanor Ostrom, who was like famous Nobel Peace Prize winner, she did basically this assessment of societies throughout history. And she basically found out that people, when they come together in these groups and they have social action together, they actually can change the trajectory of their society, right? Mm. It's what I was saying earlier. Like, we don't have to, we don't have to live with these problems. We can change them. You know, that, that brings to mind a quote from one of my all-time favorite books, which is A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Longle. <laughs> Such I mean, a good book. Basically, you know, it's where Miss Miss Who and Miss What's It are talking to the children. And, and they are saying, you know, when you really understand that on the cosmic level, size doesn't matter. And that very small mm. things, that there is very little difference on a cosmic le- level between the tiniest microbe and the largest galaxy. And that, yeah. and that in this, and you know, she, Madeline Longle paints this cosmic war against darkness and evil. Mm. And, you know, she's, and, and Miss Who says, you know, even even some of the greatest, you know, even some of the greatest fighters in the battle against the darkness have come from your own very small planet. And it is, and she says, and it is indeed a very small planet on the edge of a very <laughs> small galaxy. And it's true. And she says, and you can probably think of some of these greatest thinkers and. Uh, and, and greatest fighters against the darkness from your planet. And then the children say, Einstein and Gandhi and Jesus and Buddha. And, you know, and, and I don't know, that's that's one of those yeah. quotes that, that gives Beautiful. me life because it's this idea that smallness, smallness really can change things. And yeah, that's yeah. it's true. Okay, so let's go there with that for a minute and talk Absolutely. about species, species and vegetation and those sort of things because we're yes. talking about smallness. So there is this quote. If you go to Teton National Park, um, there's this quote that says, "And the feather tips the scale." Yes. And so it's this idea that something as small as a feather can tip the balance on the scale. And so I've been thinking about that quote for quite a few number of years. And I've done a lot of reading about national parks. And I used to lead a course for Montreal College that went to 20 or so national parks in 28 days. And every time I would go to these national parks, what people would say to me, the rangers that worked there, we would say, what is your biggest problem? Hmm. And they would say human modification, meaning problems like, you know, people around these parks modifying the environment. So not within the parks, the parks are protected. Right. So we set aside national parks in 1916 in the Organic Act, thinking that we were going to conserve vegetation, conserve biodiversity, conserve these animals, conserve historic sites, rare places for good for the next future generations and for our own enjoyment. 
we thought that was the case. Well, these park rangers have been telling me, actually, no, what's happening out outside of parks is greatly affecting what's happening inside of parks. And we are mm. seeing species losses. We are seeing pests come in. We are seeing all sorts of disease, right? And so that's one problem. And then the second problem they've been talking about is climate change. So here we think, as America, we've called national parks America's best idea, right? And we've said that these places are the crown jewels of our continent. They're the most beautiful places that we have. And we've all thought that they're protected. And we've all thought that they're going to be there for our grandchildren to see. And we're going to take our grandchildren to Old Faithful. And there's going to be bison ro roaming. And we're going to go to, into Yosemite Valley. And we're going to see a, a counter, right? All have these ideas that these places are protected. And what national parks have been telling us is really for about 50 years, they've been saying they're not protected. It's a farce. Yeah. We're, we, we're having species losses. And there's actually a group that's a part of the national park and it's called the national park um, monitoring inventory and monitoring system. And they basically have data collected from back from the very first park managers. So we know these specific species and we know what their populations are doing over time. And so I kept thinking, well, how do we tip the scale? Right? So climate change is one thing, like climate change is yes. something that we all need to tip the scale on and we need to not live as business as usual. But these protected areas, what do we do for them? And so mm. that's kind of where my work comes in. And so I really started researching what would make these species be able to live? What would make my grandchildren someday be able to see a bison, right? Right. Um, and so, though, or so see that's, a coral reef. Or see a coral reef, right. So I started thinking and brainstorming about that. I got really lucky and I reached out to the Wilderness Society. The Wilderness Society promotes wilderness, um, and they're, they're, they were started by a guy named Benton Mackay, who's actually a Harvard grad as well, so go Harvard. Um, and so he basically, you know, him and, and then Aldo Leopold, which is like a famous, famous conservationist, basically said, like, we need these places of wilderness, these places that are original without human modification. So that way we kind of know what these lands always would have been like right? We have a place of comparative study that we can look at and say, yes. hey, that's, that's, what, that's what a coral reef once should have, that's what it used to look like to our mm. grandchildren. Now over here, this is what it looks like. And then, mm. you know, this is, this is what a long grass prairie looks like. This is, this is what a taiga looks like or whatever, like all the different eco regions and everything. So I was really lucky. I reached out to the lead ecologist, his name's Dr. Travis Bloat, and kind of said, hey, I'm interested in kind of figuring out how to save national parks. And I have some ideas and I want to kind of run them past you. The lucky part about that is that's something that he's worked on for the last 20 years and is like has 41 papers published in. And he became my thesis director. And so I got to study under him and really learn about something called permeability. And permeability is that we need to allow species to move outside of parks and then back into parks or outside of protected areas and back into protected areas. And how we do that is that we've got to connect these parks to each other. And that's the feather that tips the scale, Stephen. We have to have enough wild lands that these species- So that it's can, connective. So it's connective. Instead of they, isolated. Correct. So when we deal with isolation, then we have all of this human modification around it. So you can think about like 
it's almost like humans are like a disease that are attacking this like beautiful piece in the middle, right? And our roads and our roads actually, like if you look at Yellowstone, you look at Oh, it's just slices it open. It just cuts through. Well, and or like the image that instantly came to my mind was like it's like trying to to isolate a cell in a body or like an organ. And so it's like you can cut out an organ and try to keep it alive and it and it isn't going to work because it needs the rest of the body because the body is a whole thing, right? It's a network, yeah. And so that's the thing is that no one really thought about ahead when we we're setting up these national parks and then later state parks or later BLM lands or mm. later wilderness areas or either forest service lands. No one thought about making sure that these areas were connected to one another. We mm. were just trying to save, like for national parks, we were just trying to save cool places, rare places. Or for forest service lands, we were just trying to use certain lands that had good timber or certain lands that had good gems or certain lands that had good coal or whatever, you know, like all the different things. So none of us thought about con- making sure these connect- connections were still present. And so my work, the feather that tips the scale for me is making sure that these places are permeable. So they're a network where species can go from one place to another, where water can flow freely from one place to another, Mm. right? And then, of course, that leads into air and all those things. So it's good land, pure water. Like if I can preserve those two things, then I feel like I've done my job in the next 40, 50 years. And in order to do that, we have to stop thinking compartmentalized and start thinking holistically. Like this is an organism. So, I mean, like you bring up roads. So like, what do we do with roads? Do we like elevate roads and put them above the tree? Like what do, what the fuck do we do? Is that, do is that? That's one part of it for sure. So like my work right now that I'm working on is something called the greater ecosystem model gem. And I'm working on it with Dr. Below. So he, he really is lead author on that one. And basically our idea is that these protected areas, they have greater ecosystems. So what we currently have said is that they're this size. In reality, what species are using is all these other coincentric circles outside of them. And so what we're mapping are the wildest lands. So we're saying, where are the wildest places of degrees of wildness around these lands? And Define what, wildness real fast. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> there's a lot of different definitions on it. Okay. So, you know, wilderness, well, wild lands are places that are not human modified. Okay. And so like the most untouched in other words. The most untouched. But the problem is, and this is a question I want to look at for my PhD that I don't have down yet. As far as I know, nobody's researching this question yet. But I really want to know how wild does a place need to be so that animals can really roam and water can run free? Mm -hmm. And I don't. So that's basically going back to biodiversity, that we keep biodiversity going and that we keep what's called ecosystem services going. So our basics, like our our food, water and shelter. That's my Ph.D. question. And so you'll have to interview me again in five years or or, or four years. But in the meantime, (laughs) we don't know the degree of wildness that we need. We don't know. Well, and we have some thoughts, you know, there's some people that think, well, it has to be 100% wild. And then there's some people like me that say, I don't know that that's true. Because when we look at undulates, when we look at elk and bison and these different things, they use human roads all the time to walk on, hmm. which is interesting. So they're, interesting. they're using those things for species movements, just like we use their trails, they're using our, our trails. So how can we build roads that work for both of us, you know? 
Like, how can we, like in Asheville, you guys have this, you guys have permeable roads. You have, you have entire breweries that have now said, hey, we're going to make sure we're not going to use asphalt. Instead, we're going to use this type of road substance where when water hits it, it can, it can percolate down into the soil and can go into the water table. So That's that would cool. keep, yeah, that would keep an ecosystem service going. So hmm. maybe every new road that we build needs to be permeable. And hmm. then maybe roads as we build them, some of them need to be elevated so species can go underneath them. And then how, how much width do they need, you know, those species huh. to be able to go. So we need to start thinking differently with the things that we're building. And thinking, so, and so basically what I'm hearing is as we are building stuff and changing the structures that are already in existence, that we need to start thinking about how do we share this instead of how do we use that? Like, instead of Correct. it being solitary, like just us, we're having to think about how do we share this space with nature, with these other yep. species, because we are, whether we realize it or not. Um, you know, like I grew up with my mom always rescuing box turtles trying to cross the highway, and she would do that constantly, like stop and, and yeah. pick up box turtles along the highway. So yeah. we we're sharing I, these highways with with other animals. Yeah, pause for one second because yeah. my animal's going crazy. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> okay, can you hear me? I yeah, can. So, so we are, yeah, we're sharing these places with species, and we have been since our forever since our beginning history. And indigenous people generally know how to share with species, and we don't because we became about self, right? All of this stuff, this capitalistic stuff, has really been about our our own survival, our own self. Hmm. And one of the things that's interesting that this kind of, this coincides with my previous work, which was on kids being outside and kids being in, on greenways and kids being in, on parks. Basically what we're finding is that when kids spend time outside, they have better morality when they grow up. That's fascinating. So the reason is, is because they become, we call it the human nature connection. They become mm. connected to the greater ecosystem that they live in. And they realize that it's not just about self. They are seeing the box turtle and they have compassion for the box turtle and they rescue it. And then later on when they're growing up, they're going to be the person that puts on the brakes instead of the gas when they see the box turtle, right? Because they've, they've connected huh. with it. That's but amazing. as a society we have disconnected from nature. More people now live in cities than they do in the country. More mm -hmm. people spend time inside than they do outside. Mm -hmm. More people spend time on technology than they do on walks in the woods. Mm -hmm. And so we are having a morality issue. And you can see that in our government. The, the other day I watched on Facebook the way that a male senator treated a female senator on the Senate floor, she was talking, she had the floor, and he was basically yelling at her and yelling at the, the moderator to stop her from having her God-given time. Yes. And I was sitting there watching this and going, I work with children and I would never, ever let that happen in a second or first grade classroom. Hmm. That type of behavior might happen in kindergarten and we would call the mama yes. <laughs> and be like, hey, you need to like, we're <laughs> going to be working with this kid, whatever, like that sort of thing. But by the time they're in first and second grade, they know how to let someone else talk and not yell at them and what's expected behavior in a classroom. And we have senators that are not able to act older than a kindergartner. That is because we have a morality issue. And I think it comes back to our time spent outside. And that's the other reason why I study national parks. 
That makes so much sense. So it's all connected. Like yes. all these things, immigration, food, water, energy, land, it all comes back to good land, pure water. So when we're talking about what are simple things, what are habits that people can do to start to affect change, one of those things could be to start to reprogram our brains by spending more time outside. Absolutely. Like, like if more people started spending more time outside and with nature, that that reprograms us. Like I, I go, uh, I run up in the mountains here in the Appalachias every day. Yeah. Um, and I find that if I don't do that, if I don't have that time to just be with me and nature and an audiobook, then I start to fall apart and I feel this. And it isn't just because I'm missing. It isn't just because I'm missing exercise. It's because of it's because I'm missing solitude and nature. Those two. Yeah. Like I can get the exercise at a gym and it doesn't have the same effect. Yeah. You know? And so like one of the things that people could do is to just start spending more time in nature. Yeah. John Muir talks about, you know, he's kind of my, originally he was my kind of favorite environmentalist. Now I have tons of favorites, but he would talk about sauntering in the woods, you know, not running, but just spending time, just walking along in the woods and noticing. And, you know, it, it brings you such wonder to your life and it brings, like you said, such happiness and it, mental health. And there's, there's a whole body of literature on that now. Um, the Children in Nature Network, you can get on their website and they have a whole research link. And it basically shows from kids all the way to people that are in prison, people that are in geriatric facilities, how spending time outside has affected their mental health as well as their physical health. And then the NAAAE, which is the National Association Association for Environmental Education. They have a very similar research website. And it's um, it's astonishing what nature does for people and what it does for society. And that's the reason why I think my work is the feather that tips the scale. My work is extremely important because if I can help to save national parks and I can help to expand protected areas into a network, I'm not going to all only help to solve an environmental problem such as climate change. I'm going to help to solve societal problems and societal problems help to solve economy problems. Yes. It's all connected to one another. It's a nested design. That's amazing. And, you know, I there was a point made in, in an environmentalist podcast that I listened to called Living on Earth, and I recommend everyone go listen to it. It's it's a really amazing educational podcast. Mm -hmm. And they had a guest on uh, the, the director of the um, new Netflix show about Earth. It's not planet Earth. It's it's another one. It's okay. narrated narrated by David Attenborough, and it's about yeah, species yeah, I've on heard Earth. About it. Yeah, and and basically what he said was, and and its release coincided with the release of this terrifying UN report. And and basically what he said was, there's still so much of nature that we can save. Yeah, there's still so much out there that we can save, and that should inspire hope. It, yes. it should because we have caused this problem, uh, you know, as as David Wallace Wells says, this is the this is the era of man. This is the Anthropocene. We have caused mm -hmm. this problem. And that means that we now have a terrifying godlike capacity to mm -hmm. fix the problem. And there's still so much that we can save and that should inspire hope. And there is a certain measure of terror in that as well. So I have one last question be before we sure. before we head on out here, because I need to go get ready to teach a yoga class. But, oh, fun. Um, so 
how do you, so you are in this every day. Yeah. This is what you live and breathe. And, Absolutely. you know, it is becoming more of what I live and breathe just because mm-hmm. you can't get away from it. And mm-hmm. climate and environment is everywhere. It is everything. And right. so I'm thinking whether I realize it or not, like I will come home from work on a busy day and realize I have been thinking about climate change every moment Mm. of the day and not realizing it. (laughs) Like it's been there. It's been working in the back of my mind and and about species loss and environment. Like it's there, but I'm not a scientifically minded person. I'm not working on it the way you are. I'm not working in it. How do you maintain your stability and mental health? Like how, like how do you deal with this shit? Yeah. How, and you're someone who's actually working on it, yeah. but there are so many people out there like me who are super afraid, who are mm-hmm. absolutely terrified and who feel powerless because we don't know the science and right. we don't feel like we have much political clout or much influence. So what do you do to deal with the mental health yeah. part of this? Yeah. Long walks in the woods, Stephen. Okay. <laughs> Because long walks in the woods make you feel better, make you feel connected. They remind you of Lynn Margellis and James Lovelock have a great quote. They, she was a microbiologist and he was like an astrophysicist. Uh, so the two mm. of them together is like the scale that you were talking about, small scale to large scale. Mm. And they always say life will find a way. Mm. That's their, that's their, they've researched all this time together, both the stars, both the cosmos and the smallest of all species. So they have Mm. ran the full gamut and they know that life will find a way. And so I spend my time long walks in the woods, swimming in a coral reef, um, bike, you know, like I'm out there every day reminding myself that life will always find a way. Humans need to get on board with that life is going to find a way. Right. And so that's with or without us, with or without us, like the world will continue in some way. We might not be here to enjoy it. Um, but life will find a way it, it, it yeah. promises to. Yeah. And, and you know what that reminds me of, I remember a year or two ago, I read this incredible article and you might be aware of it, how basically scientists have discovered this gigantic biome deep in the earth that is mm. huge and massive and that these are bacteria that live for decades, like yep. because life is very different under there. And I just remember reading that and being filled with such an incredible sense of wonder and relief because yeah. it's like those things are going to survive down yeah, there. And, absolutely. And I know it's just bacteria and people might think that that's not very encouraging, but I just remember <laughs> feeling at the time that is so incredible. That's so amazing. And it's so amazing that long after we're gone because we can't last forever, those things are going to keep living, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's was reassuring to me for some yeah. reason. My greatest conservation hero now is a guy by the name of Ed Wilson, and he he publishes under E.O. Wilson, so people know him about that. Famous conservation biologist, and he's the one that wrote Half Earth, which is my work is based off of saving half the Earth. Like Mm. I feel like we need to save half for them, half for us, because that's what he says, right? And he's Mm. been studying it for 50 years. He's 90 years old. He just had his birthday on June 10th, and my birthday was on June 13th three days after his. Yeah. And we're 50 years apart from each other. And I wrote him a note basically promising him that I would spend the next 50 years doing this work. 
Hmm. He's 90 and I'm 40. And I wake up every single morning thinking life will find a way and I'm going to keep pushing to make sure that that happens. And so there's a group of conservationists around the globe that are doing that every single day. And then the rest of you guys, if you could do the project drawdown, you know, I I started with small environmental changes when I was in my 20s. And when I first started teaching at Montreat College, I think I was like 28, 29. When I did my ecological footprint, it took 3.1 earths to sustain my life. So meaning like if everybody on the globe lived like Melissa Wilson, it Mm. would take 3.1 earths. Mm. And now it's less than one earth. That's amazing. So yeah. So like in 10 years time, I've changed my environmental behavior so much that if everyone lived like me, we could all survive. Yeah. And that took only 10 years, you know, so things like that, you know, go to the project drawdown website, um, read the UN sustainability goals, which are goals for every country to start following and start Mm. asking your senators, your, your representatives within your small town to live out what that UN report says there's 17 targets start asking for those things on a, on a community level. And then every day, go take a walk in the woods and remember that you're deeply connected to this place around you and good land, pure water. Absolutely. I think that's yeah. a great place to end. Perfect. Thank you so much for doing this. I so very Thank much appreciate you. it. Maybe we can do this again at some point. Uh, for people who want to follow your work, where can they do that? Yeah, melissawilson.net is the best place to find me. Um, If they want to see more about the Wilderness Society's work, they can go to the Wilderness Society's website. Uh, That UN report, we can put a link to that up, and we can also put a link up to the sustainability goals and project drawdown. Awesome. We will do just that. All right. Well, that is it for this show. Thank you so much for listening. As usual, the music is by the Jelly Rocks and Eleventy Seven. The artwork is by Justin Dozier Bryant. And you can make sure this show has a long life by supporting the artist directly by going to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long and donating a dollar a month or five dollars a month. And as usual, thanks for listening. She Show me that you know me Give me a connection All of your affection to All the rest of you Cause all of my words fall out underwater Never quite learn to swim like they are I drown down and out in blue On their way to you Square sounds in a Yeah.